Hello, welcome to the How to Eat Alone podcast with me, Julia Georgialis. I'm a baker and I write about food. This podcast is about being and eating alone. I've been talking to different people about their own experiences of solitude and solo dining. With every episode, I'll share a recipe or two designed to be cooked and eaten by one person and one person only because I find that most recipes are written for two or more people. So you can cook along whilst you listen. Think of this podcast as a bit like a dining buddy. This episode is about backpacking. I've always thought backpacking was quite a strong part of the culture of wealthier English-speaking countries like the UK and Australia and America. It's an acceptable thing for young people to do when they reach a crossroad in their lives, to pack a bag and leave home and explore either their own countries or, or other parts of the world before heading back home and settling down. To take the time out and find yourself, to get a fresh perspective about what the next steps might be is a real luxury. It kind of reminds me of the Grand Tour, which was a 17th and 18th century custom where young upper-class Brits would take a trip round Europe when they came of age. It was kind of a rite of passage and I think it was the ancestor really for backpacking today. I travelled a lot in my 20s by myself and on one of my longest backpacking trips... I ended up unexpectedly in Guatemala where I met Gareth Wright, my guest for this episode. I met him in a place called Samuk Champay, which is nestled deep in the Guatemalan jungle and it's full of these really beautiful bright blue natural pools. When I travelled, I met so many people travelling for so many different reasons and a lot of them were travelling alone like me. I think there's a lot of different types of backpacker and I often try and put them into categories. There's the hedonists who travel to party and, and you might find them at a full moon party in Thailand or partying at Rio Carnival. And then there's the well-being hedonists and I think they probably are the modern day version of hippies. They take just as many drugs as the hedonists but you might find them doing yoga instead in Goa or Oaxaca. There's the corporate escapees, you know, those people who have had a burnout after working in finance or something else in the corporate world for too long and they just want to sit on the beach. And then there's the modern day explorer. And I met so many of these when I travelled around Guatemala. If they'd been alive 200 years earlier, these might have been the people to travel to unknown parts of the world. I think this is loosely where Gareth fits in. Guatemala is such an adventurous place. There's so many amazing trails and activities and there's Lake Atitlan, which attracts a more kind of hedonistic backpacker. But, but outside of that, it's a place for hikes and treks and jungles and Mayan monuments. And of course, it's also the place for volcanoes. Gareth is from Salisbury and spent a few years in the British Army. When he left, he started travelling the world by himself and quite quickly got bitten by the travel bug. When I met Gareth, he was about to start a new life as a high-altitude mountain guide to guide people up the Guatemalan town of Antigua's neighbouring volcano, Acetanango. And he was a few months into a three-year-long trip around Latin America, starting in Mexico and ending in Patagonia. 
I've been following his journey, completely fascinated by life on top of a mountain and what it means to be a mountain guide. So I got in touch with him and I asked him whether he wanted to chat to me about his life as a mountaineer. I kind of wondered if you if you would remember me because it was such a long time ago. I know, and with the amount of times that I've been there and been back there, everything sort of gets wrapped into one time. I think, was it 2016? Yeah, because I did this big backpack then. I was only supposed to be in South America for three months, and I ended up travelling for like seven months. Well, I made it as far as Cuba, really. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good going. (laughs) I skipped a lot of Central America, but I I just... Guatemala was like my favourite place. I loved it. So how comes you ended up in Guatemala? Um, so I was sort of doing a, a trip. In fact, that time, I was going back there to work in uh, in Antigua on the, the volcanoes that surround Antigua. But Guatemala had come up a couple of years before that. I was on a trip, probably reversed to what you were doing. I was going from Mexico south down to Patagonia. And I planned for one year to do this trip. And then after six months, I left Mexico. Wow, <laughs> Mexico does that to you, I think. Yeah, I, I I planned for a few weeks in Mexico, and yeah, six months later, um, what what I hadn't realised with Mexico was the snow peak mountains and and ice uh, to sort of climb, and it got into that, and then yeah, got to Guatemala. I soon knew that this trip was going to be a lot longer. Um, and yeah, the time that I met you there, I was, I was on my way to Antigua. Guatemala is definitely one of those places, right? It just sort of tries to draw you back to such an amazing place. I think it's, you know, the people that make places, right? And somewhere like Antigua, which still has that sort of rich Mayan heritage. That took me by surprise, actually, that um, I didn't know much about Mayan culture or like Mayan history. Yeah. It doesn't get taught, right? Like you No, know, no. You kind of hear about the Aztecs, but not the Mayan. Yeah. Uh, I really liked that aspect of Guatemala a lot. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, completely opened my eyes. I heard of uh, Mayans, but I was just thinking Mexico. And then what you don't realise is that, you know, there was no border and Chiapas was both countries. About 30% of Mayan civilizations have been discovered. It's still um, sort of wrapped up in, in jungle, right? And the wildlife's still around there, right? It hasn't been fully excavated. Yeah, it's really amazing. And so is that kind of what drew you to Guatemala? Was it the kind of like the wilder side of it? You tend to hear a lot about Costa Rica and Colombia, but I've wanted to take my time in Guatemala and Honduras, El Salvador. And sort of see, yeah, the, the nature side of things. It's very easy to go along, you know, the backpacker trails. But I do remember being on a couple of buses going through villages. And, you know, some of the buses are like 10-hour journeys. So it'd be three hours in and we'd go through this really cute little mountain village. And I just asked the driver to stop. I got my bag off the top and I got off there. And I, I just sort of knew that there was buses coming past daily. And whenever I wanted to get a bus... I could go and I just sort of spend time in, in those villages, you know, I felt was a real side to Guatemala, you know. That sounds something that not a lot of people would do. It, it was always on my mind in wherever I've sort of travelled or worked to do something like that, because although backpacking is, is a great way to travel, you know, you are on these buses, you're seeing these few spots, which are beautiful and well worth going to, but you already have an, an expectation of this place, right? Either because of social media or because of other backpackers. So to stop somewhere random that you've never heard about and make your own mind up about a place, it was something that really appealed to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And what led you to that big trip? I think I'd I'd had time in the army. The army was great for, you know, I joined at 16. It was on a few dodgy postings, but also on a few really, really good postings. 
So it really opened my eyes up to different countries, different cultures, whether that was Greenland or Botswana, even somewhere like Canada. You know, before I was joining the army, I'd only ever been to France and Spain on family holidays. So, yeah, it sort of opened my eyes up to travel, different cultures. But obviously, being in the military, whether it was operational or not, you were still um, in uniform. There was a detail to what you had to do. Be at this place for this time. You're doing this. You're doing that. So, when when I ended up leaving, which was about 2003-4, it became a thing at the back of my mind. You know, I want to see a part of the world, but on my own terms. Stop where I want to stop. All, all the selfish things you want to do when, when when you're by yourself and you've got no plan. So I worked for a few years back home, doing a little bit of labouring, window cleaning. You know, and I was doing small trips, one month in Southeast Asia and Europe, uh, North America. And then it become three months. And then I think I went away for six months and then I was like right and then yeah it sort of escalated I mean you know there's so many cliches flying around about how you can get addicted to travel and post travel depression and it just sort of snowballed I was like okay well I'm gonna go to Mexico and that would be the start the end I wasn't even concerned about and my plan was just to head south to Tierra del Fuego in, uh, in Patagonia and that was my only rough plan my plan was to stick to the mountains as well as much as I could mountains or volcanoes why? Why? <laughs> so I, I think it's it's just for, for me, it's what they bring to me, the, the solitude. But just found it always cleared my mind being on mountains. Just felt like it was a good way to travel. At that point, I wouldn't really consider myself a, a mountain guide or mountaineer. Um, it was only later after that I started doing qualifications. Did you do that in Guatemala? So I'd done a little bit of mountain rescue in Canada, volunteering. And basically, if I gave my time to them and helped with mountain rescue, they were going to put me through my international mountaineering qualifications uh, to, to lead at high altitude. So that sort of put me on that path. And then, yeah, it was just a case of explore the mountains. But the first time I went to Guatemala, it, it, it wasn't to work. It was just backpacking. And then you realised there was a really big volcano on there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all, all, <laughs> all the volcanoes that, you know, I got, I got up them and sort of explored. I think subconsciously the trip was also about, uh, I've, I've always been fascinated by the Andes. So although the Andes doesn't start until Venezuela and Colombia, I, I felt like if I could make a few contacts here and there just to uh, help with work further down the line. I mean, it's certainly done that. I started work whilst on this trip, which is why it took three years to, to go from Mexico down to Patagonia. But it was, it was just how the, the mountains made me feel. All that energy and whether it's like literally, so you've got the, the volcano, glaciers avalanche it's all energy and uh yeah yeah that's true but they're also quite lonely places aren't they and and they're always perceived culturally as lonely places yeah i, I think the one thing with communities within mountains is that that's exactly what it is it's a community for so many different reasons people have to look after each other because you are an isolated community. Um, you, you only have to look at things like the Inca Trail down in Peru. The trail was there so that communities could communicate with each other and take food to other communities and exchange food, whether it be uh, quinoa or coca plants, and, and then they'd use the trail to get back. Some places this still goes on, you know. Um, yeah, I, I just felt like the, the communities in the mountains was the people to see and go to. And 
you know, just how heartfelt they are. They're happy to see you, have you around. But it wouldn't be long that I want to get into the mountains and really explore by myself. But just having that understanding of the local culture there before I head into. Some of it is farmland. Everybody in Central America who's farming has a machete. So you don't want to be up the wrong trail meeting a man with a machete at the wrong time of day. So people give me great information on what parts to avoid. Because I remember when I went there, everyone was like, are you nuts? Because it is less safe. Did you ever feel like you were not safe? No, no, definitely not. Not in Central South America. Sometimes in cities, you go to a hostel and people know as you check in, like avoid this area of the city. And um, I I guess it's a little bit different for females, solo travellers. I definitely know that. I have very rarely anything too valuable on me and people sort of stop and stopping me if they see that you don't have much they're going to leave you to it. But I don't doubt there is um, dodgy people out there that can sort of get yourself into a dangerous space. But I always try and look on the positive side of, of going to these places and really 99% of the time I've, I've seen nothing but sort of love from people and, and kindness. Yeah, And I know it doesn't always work out like that. Um, and I guess I've been quite lucky with, with the travel thing and that yeah not to run into too bad of scenarios but there's there's definitely a few sketchy moments I've had in different parts of the world you know yeah and so with mountain guiding and being on the volcano like what did your job involve you have groups clients couples sometimes families sometimes school groups and like on most mountains you know where people see them hear about especially this day with social media and it being active volcanoes in Guatemala people just want to head straight up there and they've seen all these videos and photos and uh, it's just sort of assisting people leading people up to these uh, base camps and summits so that they can sort of uh, fulfill their dreams I mean I've obviously been up these trails many many times but one thing is always the same for me is um, uh, how I feel when people get to the summit Um, because I know what it looks like up there the sunrise or sunset and then a lava spewing volcano so I'm anticipating the reaction of the client after maybe a two-day slog up up a mountain um, where we're at high altitude you know we're going up to 4,000 meters particularly in Guatemala just to get to the summit and see people embrace Um, you know they're crying they're emotional but happy oh that must be really nice Uh, it's it's really where I get my uh, my buzz my excitement from my job to see people reach their goals of getting to these summits because for a lot of people you know 4,000 meters is very high so for a lot of people it's the highest they've ever been and probably the highest they'll they'll ever go there's obviously a hardcore few that you know do a little bit more but yeah certainly uh it's it's, it's a great feeling to see their reactions on the summit I mean, it's a hard trip to do, I guess. What are the practicalities of it? It's, it's everything. I'll get uh, some paperwork through beforehand. It would detail people's experience, their age. And we have a pre-trip briefing, um, let them know what to expect. But also just to put their mind at rest, because, you know, as I say, it is high altitude. So naturally, at high altitude, if you're at 3,000 metres, there's 30% less oxygen in the air. Again, at 4,000 metres, there's 40% less oxygen in the air. Nature's giving you less and your body's crying out for more air just from exerting yourself with a backpack. And then what can happen with altitude? So headaches, nauseous, vomiting, diarrhea. One in four people suffer from altitude sickness at 4,000 metres. Just And also, you know, there's things like nosebleeds that people will have at base camp at 3,000 metres. But just so that they know that this is completely natural um as we head up obviously you know there's three volcanoes there which are active two which we'll be close to if things do go awry um what to expect 
and how we would evacuate off the mountain, covering uh, the actions on somebody breaking an ankle. How do you get them out? There's no helicopter rescue in Guatemala. So I'd call uh, a guy from the village, the, the trailhead in La Soledad, and somebody would come up with a mule and then onto the mule. And then one of the guys would walk down with them back to the local town or village. With, but thankfully, there's, there's not been anything uh, too stressful with, with injuries and incidents, you know. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Do you feel with the altitude sickness? Uh, not not at 4,000 metres, no. Um, but I've climbed up to 7,000. Uh, Aconcagua, which i done solo on that trip. Oh, wow. And I got down to, to Argentina. But um, I soon learned that for me to do something solo like that, it becomes all about acclimatisation. So, yeah, it took me a few weeks to summit. So you sort of hike up to, save a second base camp, and then you hike down and sleep at the first the next day you hike up to the third and you sleep at the second. So you're going up and down, up and down, sort of staggering it. So it's the best way to acclimatise, you know. And this is a cookery podcast. <laughs> so, I, yeah. so I guess I have to ask this question. What do you guys eat when you're trekking up a volcano? There's uh, a lady at the, the base camp hostel in town and she would prepare a pasta and vegetarian uh, pasta sauce with like local herbs thing, and then uh, tortillas, maize tortillas. And then things like quinoa, couscous, really sort of think about it and try and change it up. And, that, um, you know, and we'll have baked banana bread for breakfast with peanut butter or we'd have that every morning. Yeah, everyone sort of goes for that. Marshmallows around the fire in the evening, some mulled wine heated up on the fire. Sounds like the way to do it, really. There is actually a, one of my favourite places in, in Antigua. So everybody will ask as we leave the volcano, where's a good place to eat in town? And there's this pupuseria in Antigua. So it's a couple from El Salvador that run it. I'd always recommend like going in there for a feast after. And they've done these pupusas with asparagus and blue cheese. And my God, whenever I go back there, that's the first place I go to. This little pupuseria, you'd go in and had this chalkboard and they had so many flavours. You're talking like 50, 60 different <laughs> flavours. of Yeah, the asparagus and blue cheese was, was definitely my thing. What do you do when you're not guiding, you know, when you're not working? What what do you like to do? Outside of work, when I am away, I like to explore and research trails and do my own thing. So if I'm not working, you know, it's all about coffee, maps and getting on the ground and actually seeing an area for myself, which in essence, I didn't know at the time, but that's what that three year trip became was uh, me sort of exploring, really. Um, but I definitely know without that time alone, I wouldn't be as good at my job as I think I am. So it's that alone time that sort of prepares me, whether it's uh, physically or psychologically in my mind to be like 100% on it when I am working. My time off and my alone time in the mountains sort yeah. of definitely prepares me for that. And I think the same for coming home. I do enjoy being by myself, but I also, you know, love coming home and catching up with family and friends. But I feel it's a really good version of myself when I come back home to see everyone because of that time I've had by myself. Because you appreciate it. Yeah, exactly. And I I probably don't tell my friends and family, um, you know, actually how much I do miss them when I'm away. I really haven't seen my family too much, probably since 2011. You know, it's been three or four months every couple of years. Last year, I was hoping to see a few more people, but obviously with COVID, put a stop to that. It's not much time, but I always feel that the time is 
is absolute quality. Well, that's the best way to feel because I do find if I don't have my time alone, then the time with people kind of becomes diluted. Yeah. And I don't enjoy it and I don't like not enjoying it. That's it. And, you know, you can sort of feed off how you feel as well and people will as well. So if you're ready and, you know, you feel good about it, then it's, it's going to show you to, to be excited to see somebody and spend that quality time is what it's all about, really. Right. That is what it's all about quality time over quantity of time spent with other people. I love the idea that Gareth suggests, which is that aloneness is a tool that people can use to make time with other people even better. I really respect people like Gareth. You know, I I respect them for the way they can just untie themselves from society and go off and do the things that they want to do. I think it's quite brave not to be afraid of not being close to your friends and family and to just go and explore. That's what appeals to people about travelling, I suppose, you know, that you can just kind of check out from life. And in Gareth's case, he still keeps in touch with people. He still makes time for his friends and family, but he does it on his own terms. I think you really need a good dose of confidence and perspective for this. It seems like he gets both of those things by being high up in mountains or on volcanoes. A big thank you to him for talking to me. I, I actually really could have chatted to him all day. I've left you with two recipes one for a very small but very powerful breakfast banana bread which absolutely has enough energy in it to get you up a 4,000 meter volcano and I've also added that recipe for those blue cheese and asparagus pupusas that Gareth loves so much and probably this is a good time to explain what pupusas actually are so I've first had them in Mexico but they're not Mexican or Guatemalan in fact they're from El Salvador or Honduras depending on who you talk to but Gareth mentions the Salvadorian couple who owned the pupuseria in Antigua. Pupusas have a kind of empanada vibe but the dough is fried like fritters and instead of the filling being sandwiched between dough it's kind of mixed in instead. They're relatively easy to make I was quite surprised I thought they'd be a bit more complicated but I've made them a few times now for myself. And I've also started to make a lot of curtido for myself, which is what pupusas are usually served with. So curtido is like a Central American version of kimchi, I guess. It's like a cultured slaw. And I've been making big jars of it and eating it with everything, not just pupusas. It's really nice in sandwiches. You get so many recipes with this episode. I've added the recipes for banana bread, for the pupusas and for the curtido up on the How To Eat Alone Substack blog. You can find this at howtoeatalone.substack.com. I've also added links to the recipes that take you to some actual Salvadorian people instructing you how to make pupusas, because I am absolutely not from El Salvador, and so my recipe might not exactly be 100% authentic. I really love that Salvadorian food has made it onto my podcast, via a man from Salisbury by way of Guatemala. You don't hear too much about Salvadorian food in the UK. And just so you have even more information, I've also put up some links about hiking Asatenango in Guatemala in case you ever find yourself in Central America and have a hankering to climb up a volcano. If you do want to subscribe to the How To Eat Alone Substack, there are both paid and free options, so have a look to see if either of these take your fancy. You can find out more about this podcast on Instagram. The Instagram handle is at How To Eat Alone Podcast. And of course, if you like this podcast, please share it with someone who you think might like it too. 
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed being alone with me and I'll see you soon for the next episode of How to Eat Alone. <laughs>